This Ornstein and Chapman podcast is brought to you by Bet365, the world's favourite online betting company. By downloading the Bet365 app, you can access both pre-match and in-play markets, along with instant match updates for all games. The Bet365 Bet Builder also allows you to make personalised bets via the app, so you can bet on multiple scenarios and create your own bet with unique odds right there in your hands. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only. Please gamble responsibly. Hello, welcome to the Unseen and Chapman podcast on The Athletic. As ever, we'll bring you exclusive and original stories and interviews offering agenda-setting insight from inside the game from David and writers from across The Athletic. Uh, having gone rogue and solo uh, for our last... Sorry about that. That's all right. I was just left in the kitchen having to introduce you, but don't you worry about it. Very good, though. Well it was done. good. It was enjoyable. Uh, Damien Camoli, that's still up on this feed. Hopefully you've listened to it. As far as today's pod is concerned, uh, we'll discuss Manchester United's data-driven plans to catch up with Liverpool and Manchester City. We'll welcome our new Italian writer, James Horncastle, who's joining The Athletic, and he's also had a kick around with Francesco Totti. We'll talk about how football is dealing with the coronavirus and why Arsenal star names such as uh, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang will receive a Champions League bonus regardless of whether they qualify or not. By listening to us, uh, you can get a 40% discount on subscription. Just go to theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman. And your lead story in the column this week, David, is about a new analytics department at Manchester United. Yeah, it's something we'd been working on for a little while a number of us and um, had established that as part of Manchester United trying to make strides towards uh, some of their rivals who have really excelled in in these areas off the pitch as well as you could say on the pitch Liverpool Manchester City and others United are setting up a an analytics uh, team they hope in time to get to a team of eight people um, that will be their own sort of research group. Now, I've been told that you've got to point out that this is different to analysis. Manchester United do a lot of analysis around players and matches, but the deep analytics, the expected goals and uh, measuring all sorts of um, minutiae in players and matches and areas of the club that I have no idea about. They are hoping to bring themselves up to a level that not only the others are, but Manchester United would expect to be. They are behind these clubs in an area which is uh, proliferating around football now. And so there will be a head of analytics. There are headhunters leading that search at the moment. Uh, Some of the candidates are through to the second round of interviews. Uh, The headhunters um, didn't say who the club was when they were approaching candidates. And uh, so it's quite a secretive process. I'm told there will be sort of uh, data scientists, analysts within this person's team and others. And they will report into John Murtagh, which some people find quite interesting. There are some concerns that Manchester United won't place enough emphasis and priority on this role it won't be uh, given the respect it deserves within the club they say if Manchester United just place these guys alongside the scouts or at a, a lower level of importance then it's going to fail but if they really put it as a core part of their process then they could start making the strides towards where they need to be. This is analytics purely in the sense of recruitment. 
Uh, well, it's going to cover uh, recruitment, medical, and the academy as well. Okay. So it's a really large, um, broad, and important role. People in the industry say this is a really good thing for Manchester United, and it's a really good thing for data analytics. They are seen to embrace something that many feel is vital. However, they are late. They have a huge amount of ground to make up. Clubs across the Premier League, we mentioned Liverpool, they're, they're seen as being the leaders in Ian Graham, incredibly highly respected. He develops his own data from scratch. He just gets coordinates in. The sort of things that Opta would provide to clubs. He actually gets the raw data and then he designs algorithms to suit Jurgen Klopp and Michael Edwards and Liverpool and they all communicate in a very smooth way. Brendan Rodgers brought it into Leicester recently with the appointment of their first head of football analytics, a guy called Mladan Sormaz. And others have taken different approaches. Arsenal had been on quite a rapid trajectory in this area. They've gone slightly more down down the route of relationships and, and contacts f- for their recruitment in recent times, but they still have a presence. Others like West Ham and Crystal Palace don't. Manchester, um, Manchester City have used it, and again, they have yep. somebody who devised his own models Correct. to uh, to interpret the data. And in yep. many ways, that, that, as far as I can see, when talking to these people, is the key to it. It's, it's not... You know the stats are, 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 are widely out there. You know, if, if within you know there are plenty of programs that clubs can go on to to look at all sorts of stats. But yeah. actually, it's the programs and the algorithms and everything else that are designed by the individual. They are the IP of someone they recruit. That is the key to it. That's the gold dust. That is absolutely right. And it's no coincidence that Liverpool are leading the way on this. Uh, Manchester City, you mentioned, and and they've been two of the foremost performers on the pitch. Um, I've heard some incredible things and there's some incredible stuff that's been written about Ian Graham at Liverpool. In essence, this is using data to make better decisions and be less wrong more often. So um, you're going to find value in players in the market. Some have joked to me, well, Manchester United just turned around and and paid whatever it was for, you know, however many tens of millions of pounds for Bruno Fernandes. You, You should be, you know, in time looking for your Minaminos and your players who come at a, a reasonably low price and can develop into star players. And Manchester United haven't really been doing that of late. And, you know, we've seen so many stories in, in the last couple of years about United um, hiring 50 scouts, about United taking out contracts with data companies. As you mentioned, they do use a lot of data. They have, uh, Ed Woodward has spoken on the record that their recruitment at times has not been up to scratch. So whether you like what's going on at United or not, they are taking steps to make things better and to get to where they believe they belong. Uh, Laurie Whitwell is our Manchester United uh, writer for The Athletic, has that usual look on his face of, here we go, here's 20 minutes where I try and put the club's point of view and what I've heard, and you then just grunt and ask me cynical questions all the way through. That, that's good that, balance. It's, I all about, it's all about cynicism, Jeffers. <laughs> it's all about cynicism. <laughs> the key to this, and David has already alluded to it, is not even setting up an analytics department and getting the right people in. It's how it is then used by the club. Because ideally, you're analytics department go oh i tell you what all our data shows that there really is someone in the second division in italy that we should go and watch not you know not just go to a random game but i tell you what what do you think about going to see him and then a scout goes for two months or whatever to watch him it is how it is 
melded into what United have at the moment, which isn't necessarily a streamlined structure. Totally agree. I think it depends who you speak to. Uh, you know, from the club's perspective, they've got a very adequate system where they've got you know the recruitment side of things, quite a few different sort of scouts and people there that are looking at players all the time. They've got the manager side of things, obviously with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, Mick Phelan. They will go and watch players as they obviously did with Bruno Fernandes. And then they come together. Either side has the power of veto. And ultimately then it's up to Ed Woodward and, and Matt Judge to go and negotiate the deals and, and secure them. Clearly, as you say, if you've got an analytics team that are actually unearthing these sort of gems that really nobody has, has thought of before, that is the ideal way to do it. It's just having faith in that structure for them to go and actually do the deals, which we've seen already, sometimes that falls down, really. Obviously, Bruno Fernandes was on the radar last summer, clearly. United didn't feel like he was up to standard at that point, at least. Um, certainly, that was the vibe that was being put out there. And then they go and sign him in January, late January, and obviously, he's a very good player and, and clearly good enough to improve Manchester United. So, as you say... I think it's fantastic that they're having adding to their sort of resources in terms of trying to find players, but hopefully they use them in, in the way that it's supposed to be done. Too much of their work, from what I hear in the industry, is done on the eye. And that includes the data that comes in. They look at it and they analyse. But in terms of what Mark describes as producing your own data and following the right processes, Aaron Wambasaka, in normal circumstances, should be joining, say, and I'm just plucking a random name of a club here, Everton, as a stepping stone towards a Manchester United. At Crystal Palace, Wambasaka has been relied on defensively, not in an attacking way. Ordinarily, people tell me that he should be making, say, a £25 million move to, a, to an Everton or somebody else and developing his attacking side and his defensive side and then a club of Manchester United's level should be paying the £50 million or maybe it'd be a bit higher by then to bring him in and he would be the complete player for a Manchester United but because they don't haven't had the sort of same level of approach on the analytics and scouting and, and recruitment side that, say, a Liverpool and Manchester City have had, they've made some decisions that are not quite right. And that's why Owambasaka is coming to Manchester United and um, been pretty raw in an attacking sense. Manchester United expect to attack all the time. At Crystal Palace, he didn't. So he's jumped from Palace to Manchester United when he should have had a go between him in between that this new approach is to help Manchester United make the right decisions more often you mentioned that there's a both sides would have a veto within the Manchester United recruitment department scouting department or whatever you want to call it there are a lot of people who have worked under differing managers mm. over the last mm. decade mm. really different managers with different philosophies so do they need to get to a stage where everybody is pulling in the same direction? Yeah, I do wonder whether you've got a few different, a few too many opinions in there. Um, clearly, they have you know recruitment meetings where they've got lots of different voices involved, as you say. A lot of these people on the recruitment side have come in with different managers. John Murta um, came in with, with David Moyes. Jim Lawler was dates back to Sir Alex Ferguson's time. Marcel Bou with Louis van Gaal, I think I'm right in saying so. So you've got like a lot of different people um, with different managerial associations, I guess, thinking perhaps different things. Listen, conflict is never necessarily a bad thing when you're talking about players. You know, one person might have one opinion, one person might have another opinion. Ultimately, I've been told that United look at the transfer market and think if we can get 
7 out of 10, that's a, a decent record. And I think that's probably a fair enough reflection because you, you can't get it right every time. And I suppose the last four transfers that they've made, you know, albeit I accept that you know Wambasaka and Dan James have been pretty raw for the level that they're at. So far, they look like pretty decent signings. So maybe there's something is in the current system is going okay. I still I agree with you. I don't, I don't think you can label United's recruitment massively, absolutely categorically successful so far. I wonder if this is gradually leading towards, and we've talked about this so often, the appointment at some point of director of football, technical director, sporting director. This appointment, if it ever comes, should probably be made first. And then you put your analysts and and your recruitment staff in place around that director of football. But it does show United are are thinking in a slightly broader way than perhaps they were before. Yeah, definitely. I I agree with you. I think a sporting director in in the purest sense is the guy that appoints all these people really, or at least, you know, manages to shape the team as as he wants to do, leads a clear recruitment strategy. But I just don't ever see United having a sporting director with that kind of responsibility at the club because you have, they like to give the manager a lot of responsibility and they also have lots of different people on the recruitment side that equally want to have their voices heard. So personally, I just don't, I don't know, I just think it's uh, uh, the director of football is the long, long grass. But I also think that Ed Woodward does, you know, still take a, a very clear approach in the transfer market obviously as, as we've reported previously on the athletic he put the call in didn't he to neil blake at, at bournemouth for, for josh king yeah. and, and gave him the 15 minute deadline so he clearly is very much involved and that is what you'd think a sporting director would be doing i've seen quotes from him denying that he's closely involved in the transfers and and he's sort of financial sign-off but there is a school of thought but that by bringing in these analysts and whatever you are actually diluting the power in a way that means you don't need to appoint that sporting director Mm. and that you can play that role but you've got ever more specialists around you feeding into the mix Edward Wood and Matt Drogge are the the guys that sign off on the financials they'll negotiate trying to get the best deal for the club if that is their responsibility do you need somebody else in there they would perhaps argue not I I don't know I mean I know we've had more recent reports of Antero Henrique Mm. uh, from Mm. Paris Saint-Germain again every time I check I just hear leave it alone you know so I don't know if I'm getting the wrong information but equally no I think that's right I've, I've so yeah similar and and, and as a, a side point people that I speak to say that Manchester United should go no, nowhere near him okay uh, so <laughs> you that, know more than me on that front that's then. kind of interesting I, I'm a big um, surprised that given United's American ownership that they haven't embraced because the, these data analytics that goes back to Moneyball and stuff like that, Sabermetrics, I think it's a bit more advanced or it's changed a bit now, but they haven't embraced as much as that as you might have thought for American owners. Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, though, the recruitment has been kind of similar there. I mean, you, you might know more chapters with your NFL. Well, uh, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers were, were, were successful in about 2005, <laughs> six, won a Super Bowl and then fell off a cliff. I mean, if you want to sort of equate the ownership of Manchester United and Tampa Bay Buccaneers who are both under the same owners, then, the, you know, there are similarities in so, some ways. That's it. So I wonder about... Uh, clearly the Glazers... Is that cynical enough I, for you, I, That is dripping with cynicism <laughs> there. Um, the, clearly the Glazers are involved to a degree in the financials. They have massive interest in, in the financials, but whether that extends then to the recruitment, I, I don't know. I think it probably would do in the sense of how much money are we spending on a player, but whether it's how, where's this player come from, what's the what's the origin of this player, I don't know. And in fairness, to balance it out, Chappers, um, uh, I do hear that United are sort of leaders to some extent at youth level because their scouting network is so big they can get to players talents before anybody else perhaps these sorts of appointments are 
to actually filter that in a more efficient way. Uh, we heard that United have hundreds of options for every position. Uh, Edward Wood was kind of holding that up in a celebratory way and many pointed out, well, you shouldn't have hundreds, you should have a smaller number. Maybe it is time that they realised that for all of their wide web and net, it needs to be funnelled in a much more sensible way. The numbers thing, certainly, I think they were, United, and I will do the kind of United club stance yeah, on this yeah. one, uh, if that's okay, um, is very much a case of that's the kind of pool of um, you know players they could potentially tap into and they weren't necessarily looking at, you know, 804 right-backs. But yeah, um, but yeah I, take, I take your point totally that, uh, I, I think going on the youth setup, I mean, just one sort of example, the Hannibal Mesbury yeah. Um, thing, you know, clearly everyone knew that he was a good player from from Monaco for for quite a number of years. But United went out and got him, and led to believe that that was a case of you know diligence and care. You know, with the family going out and seeing them uh, sort of in, in Paris. So obviously they got a lot of stick for not doing that with Erling Haaland, for example, or, or doing it a different way with Erling Haaland. And um, so you know, I think fair play to them for getting Mesbury on board because he does look like a real talent. Although I was at the game on on Friday and he perhaps didn't have his best game against Wigan in the FA Youth Cup, but which is going to happen to at that. Age, isn't it? Exactly. I was recently told that Erling Haaland never wanted to join Manchester United at this point in time, that he had a very clear vision, him and his father, from a young age that if things went to plan, they would take a stepping stone, preferably in the Bundesliga, uh, and that happened to be uh, Borussia Dortmund, and then a Manchester United. Many have reported that, that the Manchester United type club could be the next one. But we know that people at United were confident. Mm. Some felt he was almost in the building. He mm. had even visited. But one particular person I spoke to who has knowledge of, of the family's thinking, Erling Haaland never was planning to go to Manchester United at this stage. And really, they should have known that if that is the case. And on top of that, there'd been so much talk of Mino Raiola's involvement in this Haaland deal. And I'm not underplaying that, but I was told that it's very much Haaland and his father driving this. And Mino Raiola is almost like the front. He's there to do the dirty work, to go into battle and to negotiate with the clubs on their behalf. But they are the driving force behind this. They were the driving force behind his decision and they will be the driving force in his long-term future. On the flip side, I've, I've heard of a, another very good player who who played on Friday night for the United youth team. I think you've written about that. Mm, yeah, Shola Shortaya. So he uh, only turned 16 at the start of February. Um, I had I'd heard sort of whispers about him in the academy setup for for a little bit of time. Obviously, he played as a 14-year-old in the UEFA Youth League, uh, which is under 19. So it's an incredibly early age yeah. to be playing at that level um, under Nicky Butt at the time. So that was a record sort of young age. So clearly, people have known about him. Um, he scored against Wigan, really good finish, um, and went over and celebrated in front of the Wigan fans on his knees, um, which was quite <laughs> did kind, he? Yeah, did kind he? of provocative. Ah. And it was a, it was a large Wigan, so about a thousand Wigan fans were in there from the yeah. kickoff, yeah. and then. And all of a sudden, about five, ten minutes into the game, they let a load more in. They obviously weren't expecting that many to show up. And I don't know what was happening in Wigan on a Friday night. Maybe not much, but they were all across. Oh, God, don't hate me now. I'm going to get pelters on Twitter, aren't I? <laughs> but then, to be fair to you know, a good, good two, two, two and a half thousand, I reckon, yeah. were there. It was, a, it was a solid spot and they were singing the whole way through. So fair play to them. But um, yeah, so Shola Shota, I didn't see him overall by that anyway. It goes and gives it him in front. And then 
Sean McGurk, who scored for Wigan, did the same to the United fans. It was a good sort of bit of atmosphere between them. But anyway, on Shola Shortaya, he's only just turned 16, but United have already signed him to scholarship forms, which would usually only be done once they've left secondary school. So he he was at school on the day and then sort of played in the match in, in the night. And then also he's already signed a pre-contract for professional terms when he turns 17 next February, which is really early because usually players will you know negotiate those kind of terms when they're at 17 and, and it's it's just a lot, a lot earlier than they would expect but it protects United you know it, there have been clubs that have been looking at him from Europe so you know they can kind of give up for the next few years and just quickly on him for those that haven't seen him what kind of player is he he's a winger very quick uh, I was surprised at his passing actually on Friday night I thought he was really astute with how he used the ball and 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 putting a couple of lovely through balls, actually, um, quick. And as I say, he can finish really well by the looks of things. Get him in the first team. <laughs> See, we did that whole chat, and I wasn't that cynical on United. You were quite positive. You know? The future's bright. You're yeah, excited. Exactly. I didn't ask you whether the United analytics department are just going to be about how many mentions they get on Twitter. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> on this podcast. <laughs> right then, next on the pod, let's welcome a new signing to The Athletic, our new Italian football writer, James Horncastle, congratulations, <laughs> welcome. Looking forward to reading what you're going to write over the uh, the coming months. Your your first your first article on the website is is a fascinating insight into you. <laughs> we all yes, have to no, do that, I must add, Mark. <laughs> we can't blame James for that. It is, I suppose. Uh, you know, some people have always been quite curious as to you know how someone who is not Italian and has no real connection to Italy from you know, be it uh, family or, or, or whatever got uh, got into this. And um, yeah, it's all there in my joining uh, the athletic piece, which you know, be it from watching watching kind of Italian football on Channel Four in the '90s to playing really bad video games about it to then actually kind of meeting my my uh, my wife and moving out there. So there's there's all there's all kinds of stuff in there. Um, yeah, even even it even goes to my hairstyle and uh, well and groom, grooming techniques. Chapters. Well, th- this is this is where I come in here, really. Uh, not because, because of I'm your hairstyle. Yeah, well, obviously, <laughs> I'm a huge expert in hairstyles <laughs> and grooming techniques. But your hair is based mm. on on one of your Serie A heroes. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I'm clinging on to it just. Um, it, you know, if there if there are any kind of uh, hair retention products uh, that are you know, interested in kind of marketing on, on this on on this podcast, I, I'm I'm welcome to it. But yes, Gabriel Battistuta had a, had a big influence on my kind of formative years when I was sort of. 14 or 15 and uh you know i, I played the drums so i you know, used to like nirvana the Foo fighters so i kind of grew it a bit in homage to uh, dave grohl and then when i wasn't when i wasn't behind the snare drum and the bass drum i was usually watching italian football so you know be it Stuter and uh and, and del piero although i haven't really ever been able to master the what he had in the 90s which were those kind of musketeer kind of uh uh, sideburns and goatee and uh, there's still time there's still time but um yeah haven't been able to quite replicate that away from you and actually on, on what else you've written about in your first stint for the athletic you spent a lot of time uh with francesco totti obviously the roma legend yeah um i found out a few months ago that uh, basically there's a an eight aside league in rome um which is a bit like you know your kind of average kind of power league um in whatever city you're 
you're listening uh, to this from. Um, it's it's an amateur league. Um, there are Irish pubs in there. There are car garages. Uh, there's a fish restaurant. And, um, you know, one day in August, um, the league organizer um, got a phone call from a, from a guy who he'd never heard of before who said, look, I want to I want to register a team for this league. And um, the guy was like, all right, um, you're going to have to start in the third division because there are three tiers of it. And the guy who was calling said, no, 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 that's that's not possible. And uh, there's some big names behind this team. You, you want this team in your top league. And uh, the, the the president of the league was still, you know, kind of stood firm and was like, no, absolutely not. You will start in City of B. Uh, um, and anyway, this back and forth continues until basically the guy on the phone is told to reveal the names, uh, these so-called big names behind the team. And yeah, the guy just drops the phone when he basically says, yeah, it's Francesco Totti and some of his mates. <laughs> so, so there you go. Um, because he could have kept playing as I understand it, but because of his loyalty to Roma, which which is so unusual in, in this day and age, he really didn't want to go anywhere else to play football and Roma weren't offering him anything particularly attractive. So to keep playing, this is this is what he came up with. It's quite a fascinating story. Um, Totti's, you know, sort of born and raised in Rome, uh, grew up uh, and on his kind of bedroom wall uh, there were posters of kind of captains of Roma who'd who'd also been born in the city um, Giuseppe Giannini for example and you know he gets um, to fulfill his dream to play for the, for that team to win the league for the team to, to captain that team to set all kinds of records um, with that team and towards the end of his career um, you know the well, they weren't new owners by the time he, he uh, entered his 40s but the Americans Felt that it was it was time for him to call it a day, and I, I think I think they felt that if the decision ever was to just rest with Totti, um, he would still be playing now. He would still be playing into his sixties, and I, I suspect he's he's probably on his sofa pointing fingers at Cristiano Ronaldo, Zlatan, Frank Ribery, yeah. Gigi Buffon, thinking, well, if they can still do it, I I certainly can. So he did retire in yeah a very emotional kind of ceremony two and a half years ago. And the uh, and included in his contract was a six-year role as a director at the club, um, where he would spend you know a year kind of figuring out uh, what t- took his fancy, be it being a sporting director or commercial director or whatever. And then last summer, um, basically, he resigned um, because he felt that his decision did not count at all at the club. Franco Baldini, um, who still has a, a role at Roma, even though it's an unofficial role, he felt that uh, Baldini was the one who was always calling the shots. And he left the club in very kind of controversial circumstances. The first time Totti had, had not been involved with Roma in three decades, um, essentially. And in you know, sort of planning out his life since then, and David will probably know some of this, is you know, he's, he's now moved moved into becoming a football agent. He is a registered FA Uh intermediary. Um, And he, in fact, the day I went to see his team uh, play this eight-a-side game, um, he launched his um, agency and consultancy business um, and has been sort of linked with some of the the bright young things, the next generation of Italian football, be it Federico Chiesa um, and Sebastiano Esposito. But... Uh, whilst he's been getting that up and off the ground, 
He's been playing eight aside every Monday night. Doesn't matter where he goes, be, you know, playing against O'Connell, the Irish pub um, in Austria. Um, and uh, his team, yeah, is fourth in the league um, at the time we record it. So even having Francesco Totti is not enough. Um, and I say that, Chappers, because he just calls his mates to come and join in every now and again. So he's had 20 million euro Alberto Aquilani, former <laughs> Liverpool side, coming for him. He's had David Pizarro, who spent, what, a few months with Man City at, uh, under Roberto Mancini in midfield, pulling the strings. And uh, Mirko Vucinic uh, and, and a, a whole host of others are playing against these kind of amateur semi-pros. Um, you know, who spend, you know, sort of their free time either, you know, behind the bar at this Irish pub or kind of refitting tires at this uh, mechanics shop. As regards what's going on at the moment in Serie A, how, how far is it off chaos or is it already at a chaotic stage? Oh, it's, it's, it's been there for a week, Chappers. Um, I mean... It's it's quite remarkable um, that the league itself um, is to some extent um, hostage to what the the government directives are, but at the same time, when they have had the ability um, to strategize and uh, come up with a plan of of just coping and, and and keeping Italian football going in this crisis, they've made um, a series of either bad decisions or they've flip flopped on those decisions and. The there is an exasperation uh, within uh, within the, the the stakeholders in that league, so the clubs um, that is still playing out um, as we speak, because we've got a, a genuine risk at the moment um, of um, fixtures not being able to be fulfilled um, because the the time frame now is is so slim. Um, you have Inter, for example, kicking up a huge fuss at the moment because they had a game postponed. Uh, last weekend and this weekend as well. So they're now two games behind everybody else. Um, and they have got the Champions League, uh, sorry, the Europa League um, coming up. And they have to look at the Europa League as a competition that they can go all the way to the final in. Um, mm-hmm. They're still in the cup. So that means that they don't have any room in their schedule at the moment to replay at least one of the games against Sampdoria right until the end of May. Um, even into the beginning of June, which, you know, as, as you guys know, is when national teams are preparing for the European Championships. Italy have a friendly against San Marino. Um, the European Championships actually kick off in Rome on June 12th, and there are four games in uh, due to be held in Rome in the competition. So there, there are all kinds of talks going on at the moment in terms of do they move the Cup semi-finals, which are due to be held this midweek, um, so that these league fixtures that have been missed are fulfilled. Um, and uh, what about this March international break as well? Because we've seen um, other events in, in other sports cancelled, uh, be it Six Nations games, be it MotoGP, um, because of, uh, well, say in, in the case of the MotoGP, Italian drivers um, uh, being involved in that race. You know, England play Italy in March. Uh, Italy play Germany in March. Are these fixtures going to go ahead? And if they aren't, is that two-week window a space in which some of these games can be replayed? So there are all kinds of discussions going on at the moment. Going right back to, to near the start of that answer, you talk about the, the flip-flopping of decisions <laughs> and stuff that them in some ways contradicting themselves at times because Juve Inter was due to be played behind closed doors wasn't it and then it went to being postponed now that's now set to be 
middle of May. I wonder whether Inter's anger, as well as the fixture pile-up, is that playing Juve behind closed doors is probably more preferable than playing them in mid-May if that is a title decider, with all due respect to Lazio, who are flying at the moment. And look, Chappers, there was a real sense that this game came at a good time for Inter um, as well mm. at the weekend because uh, Juventus have not been playing very well. Um, they lost um, to Lyon in midweek um, in the Champions League and, and seem quite vulnerable um, at the moment. So certainly when this decision was made, um, the conspiracy theorists, and they're never far away um, in, in Italian football, thought that this was a decision <laughs> that was made um, through pressure put on the league um, by Juventus. Now, I'm told that um, the reason why, um, one of the reasons why we've seen uh, postponements is because a number of the big clubs, not just one, but a number of them, have expressed um, their dissatisfaction at the prospect of games going ahead behind closed doors because of what it looks like on TV, mm. um, because of what the what message that sends about Italian football and also Italy as a whole, as a country, and how it's handling this crisis. And um, it just does not send um, the right kind of signal, really, about how the country is, is handling um, this crisis. And also, yeah, I mean, you have to consider the the not only the loss of revenue to the clubs, but the 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 fact that they want fans to go and see these games. Um, you know, this is you know, I'm sure every season ticket holder when they uh, when the fixtures come out, look at the Derby d'Italia, Juventus Inter, uh, and put a ring around it in their calendar and want to be there. Um, they yeah, you know, they don't want that game to go ahead behind closed doors. So. There's a, there's a there's a multitude of, uh, of of reasons that go into into the decision there. I think the league um, has has flip flopped on 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 this so badly because, for example, the recommendation, as far as I can tell, um, last week was uh, from the government was that um, all the games be postponed mm. um, because even a game that held behind closed doors, which we did see in Italy on Thursday night between Ludogorets and Inter. You are still putting players at unnecessary risk. Um, yeah, there are 22 players out there. There are 100 members of staff, be it um, you know medical staff, coaching staff, cleaning staff, ground staff. That in itself is a place of assembly, and there's 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 a risk um, that players um, can be exposed to the virus. So that is another reason why. Um, they don't want um, these games to go on until the, the situation stabilises, which, as we can tell at the moment, is still very uncertain. James, it's good to have you as part of the team. Uh, do, do we do we create a nickname for you, like like Batty Gold? You become Horny Bat or or Batty Horn or Horny Goal? Or, well, I, get, I mean, I none of those. Goal. Horny yeah, Goal? Yeah, I mean, Horny Bat sounds... sounds yeah. <laughs> Not I'm, a... I'm sure you could find that in some jungle. In, 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 yeah. We'll, we'll go with Horny Goal. Horny Goal, excellent. Right, welcome, welcome to the Athletic. Grazie mille. <laughs> James Horncastle <laughs> or Horny Goal as he prefers to be called uh, now with us uh, you can read his full interview which is a, a great read with Francesco Totti just subscribe to The Athletic and don't forget um, there is the uh, German football podcast as well that we do absolutely free to listen to all of our podcasts free to listen to if you subscribe to The Athletic you get the ad free versions uh, but Stellicast is out now and uh, that podcast at the moment de deals with all the uh, fans fury 
around how some of the uh, the German ultras have been dealt with over their banners recently protesting against the Hoffenheim owner. So Stellicast is available to listen to now. OK, we'd just like to pause for a brief minute here to ask you just to click into the show notes for today's episode and then follow the link that's there to a very short survey and tell us, this is where it gets a bit dangerous, what you think about this podcast. Who came up with this? Is this one of yours? Who came up with this an idea? I get the blame for everything here. Yeah, right. Okay. So the survey is 11 simple questions, and it will take you no more than 60 seconds to complete. I promise. I promise. Just 60 seconds. So all you've got to do, head to the show notes for today's episodes and click on the link. Do you think if I say be nice, it will sound desperate? Be nice. It does a bit sound desperate, but thanks. <laughs> Let's go back to your column, David. Uh, and you talked about uh, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang and the European bonuses that are within Arsenal. Yeah, well, on Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, that's not my story. That had um, come out in the football leaks that he um, would be getting a Champions League bonus regardless of whether Arsenal were playing in the Champions League. Essentially, it's just guaranteed money and it happens to be what the Champions League bonus was remaining um, owed to him. Whereas most other players... um, and Arsenal in the vast majority, around 90% of their contracts, um, did and in many cases still do have a have a Champions League bonus that amounts to about 25%. So by missing out in 2017 and onwards, they've lost a significant chunk of, of their salary. Um, the, the remaining 75 roughly percent being base pay. Now it's really interesting on the Europa League front, Arsenal being knocked out last week means that for the third season in a row they get no money, the players, from the Europa League. In most competitions stage by stage, round by round game by game, there will be incremental bonuses rewarding victories or draws or minutes played on the pitch Um, but Arsenal uh, under Arsene Wenger didn't want to countenance the idea of playing in the Europa League. So all of the bonuses were geared around the Champions League, FA Cup, Premier League, etc. And Arsene Wenger purposefully, consciously refused to allow Europa League clauses to be put in the contracts. It was a psychological tactic, really, and it worked, you could say, for many years. Arsenal were seen as a Champions League club for players and their representatives who did ask about why this was the case, because even clubs like Manchester City have Europa League clauses if they were to play in the competition. They were told, we're not a Europa League club, and that was that. But in 2017, they failed to qualify for the Champions League. Um, And so very quickly, ahead of the new season and the Europa League campaign, a meeting had to be gathered. Some senior uh, executives uh, went into the dressing room and presented a plan to the players, which was in line with most of their other bonus schemes. Because separate to the contractual bonuses, there is a, and this happens at every club, a bonus schedule that all players benefit from to the same extent. So if there are younger players who don't have a Champions League clause in their contract, they all benefit through the common the the yeah, communal okay, yeah. the communal schedule and in and most clubs you can't double up so if it's in your contract and on the schedule you only get one of them uh, the schedule is to make sure that everyone is treated fairly and so the executives went into the dressing room and um suggested a staggered europa league uh, bonus amounting to a pool of around 3 million pounds so r- roughly 100 thousand pounds per player led by per mertesacker who was captain at the time they rejected it 
they said it was a bad idea. The sort of paraphrasing here, but we are the Arsenal. We um, should be expecting to win competitions like this. It's all or nothing. We either take the whole pot if we win the Europa League and nothing if we don't. I must add that there were some players who were more than happy to sign up to that schedule, unsurprisingly, but the communal decision was not to. They were told to go away and have a think about it, which they did, but they came. They formed a committee, which included uh, Per Mertzaka, Lauren Koscielny, and then they came back and met with the club bosses and said, nope, that's our decision. So that for the 2017-18 to 18 campaign was the situation and Arsenal got to the semi-final they were knocked out by Atletico Madrid uh, nothing same in 2018 to 19 when they got to the final nothing and this season uh, they've already gone and so they earn nothing again the Champions League incentive is still there to qualify so that they'll be extra motivated to do that now because of this financial shortfall and the shortfall by not being in the Champions League FA Cup bonuses and for most clubs are pretty small uh, League Cup bonuses are either negligible or completely non-existent uh, for instance Aston Villa wouldn't have earned extra money if they had won the right. the League Cup final on Sunday. There was no bonus in place. Manchester City, interestingly, would have because they have bonuses for pretty much everything, and it's no coincidence, perhaps, that you yeah. know they're a club that's won a lot. Are there penalty not penalties, I suppose, but um, various stages and grades in United players' contracts as well, Laurie? Because when when people talk about how United are paid and bonuses for European competition, it's always discussed on the commercial side. Mm. Or if United aren't in the Champions League, they lose money from Adidas and Chevrolet and so on and so forth. Yeah, um, I don't know about Europa League progression. You've given me an idea for a story there, David, so I'll go <laughs> and have a look. Um, but no, in terms of players and Champions League, it's, it's the same 25% cut to their wages if they don't make it in. So, for example, I think if you signed, you know, last summer, you get you get your wages in full, but then uh, next season, if they're not in the Champions League, they will come down by 25%. Although there is a caveat to that because I was speaking to somebody who, with, with knowledge of, of these kind of contracts, and was saying that actually each uh, agent could um, negotiate a cap to, to what they actually lose that their client loses so obviously again I guess then the club takes a, an individual stance on whether how much they want to keep that player or, or, or buy that player so for example I think one one um, instance was 75 grand a week the player might have been on uh, and the cap was 300,000 pounds so you know quite a, a significant reduction as to what they would have been losing if it had been for the full 25% um, and then also in terms of the sponsors as you say the, the Adidas um, thing is sort of well known Cliff Beatty uh, Chief Financial Officer has spoken publicly about that, but as I write uh, in David's column today, yeah. it is slightly different in that it's okay. It's a tw- so if they don't make it this season, it's two seasons out of the Champions League. Therefore, the the, the clause is activated. Twenty two and a half million is the chop to the seventy five million pound a year. Uh, deal which lasts for 10 years um, but they can actually stagger that over the next five years of the, of the contracts and even in accountancy terms it was way above my head but when it was explained to me they can backdate it and it's it's basically not as substantial a loss immediately as, it, as you'd think as you say is in Davis column and I and I did read that and when you start you. no 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 I, but also when it started to explain how it could be offset accounting wise I was thinking oh I'm, I'm, I'm understanding this and then as it got deeper and deeper in I thought I just, I just might, might have to go on to the next story here, David. Sorry. Well, that's all right. Personal offence taken, but let's move on. Um, what I find really interesting is that this club bonus schedule that, that pretty much every club have, separate to the contractual bonuses, um, is agreed by 
a committee of players. Sometimes it's just the captain. Uh, in fact, in one case, uh, last season in a relegated Premier League club, it's not fair for me to say the club and player's name, but the captain uh, negotiated uh, a, a bonus scheme that basically said if they survive relegation, they get the payment. He could have tried to negotiate that we um, we get paid per win or whatever. But that was the motivation to stay in the Premier League. They got relegated and so the players got nothing. And I'm told many of them were pretty miffed at his negotiation uh, in that, that situation. Um, the agents don't really get involved in this because agents don't earn off bonuses. They earn off of salary or the transfer itself. So it's left to the players, many of them young players, negotiating with executives and very intelligent people. And I wonder I think that's quite bizarre and it's something that sh- surely has scope for change because it doesn't seem to be um, fail-safe. Well, and, and also, you, when you spoke about the Arsenal one, you said, you know, it's Mertesacker and Koscielny that are, are leading this, which is fair enough, but they are senior footballers and World Cup, well, certainly probably at the time that it was done, Mertesacker as a, yep. as a World Cup winner. And whilst you sort of understand the motivation, and I think that's great, the the bonus for them would probably be neither here nor there. But yeah. if you're the 18, 19 year old kid who's getting a bit of Europa League action and trying to make your way, then the bonus, I know they're all on good money, but the bonus would be a big thing. Yeah. And these things really do affect internal harmony within clubs. Mm. We know how divisive the issue of money is across society. But within these clubs, with young professionals, experience, middle of the road, um, different priorities, different levels of income, different influences around them, um, it does have an effect on mentalities and performance and um, cohesion and camaraderie. I was just going to say there's a, there's a couple of examples that I think are really interesting. Leicester's one from when they won the title was on the player pool bonus that they organised at the start of the season. Their bonus structure was all about finishing 12th, so that's how high it went up to. So it yeah. started at 17th, went all the way up to 12th, and that was all they they thought of. So once they'd got to 12th, everything above, they'd already maxed out on their bonus, which is about 6.5 million throughout all of them and also within that they got um, they shared it out equally if you were in a match day squad so Mark Schwartz even though he never actually played for Leicester in that title winning season he was on the bench every single week and he got the same bonus as uh, Jamie Vardy or Kasper yeah. Schmeichel who, who played every week and then the other one that just springs to mind is Wolves when they got promoted um, they negotiated a bonus pool totally the opposite to Leicester where I wrote the story that they'd, they'd had a European clause in there so if they got up to Europe they got X amount and it kept going up and so I, I did the story and then Nuno got asked about it in his press conference and he said ah we've got a bonus for winning the league as well so even sort of it went even further than <laughs> yeah. I'd, I'd sort of managed to ascertain so different ways and different every every club is different and guarding against the Schwarzer example is that most clubs now do reward a certain number of minutes or, or yeah. games played or whether they came on as a substitute or were a starter or um or were not involved in the squad at all there are all sorts of caveats and then there is the situation I, I i don't profess to know exactly what happened here but when the leicester players were given cars as mm-hmm. as a reward from their late owner um and how benefit in kind can be treated differently to financial bonuses when they can be rewarded because you know just dangling a a reward in front of a player before a cup final I'm not sure if it's permitted it could be I don't know the exact rules around that but also if it's really sort of ethical or sustainable and then when that has to be accounted for do do they get paid now and next Mm. season I've heard quite a lot about club trips they could say right we're all going to take you to Vegas Um, if they just send them off to Vegas or somewhere that's different from if they 
organised it as a formal club trip. That's allowed within regulations and tax things. So the area of bonuses uh, could make a pod or an article for you in itself. (laughs) That's it for this week. Make sure you subscribe to The Athletic to read in full all the great articles from uh, David, Laurie and our new Italian football writer Hornigol uh, who has that amazing interview with Francesco Totti, James Horncastle of course, loads more to come uh, from him over the next few weeks and from all our writers of course just by listening to us you can get a 40% discount on subscription 40% off, all you have to do is go to theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman all of the podcasts are completely free and ad free versions are available if you subscribe, that's it, we'll be back next week thanks for listening cheers